This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. I'm of course here with Paul Myrie, our sound engineer. It is my pleasure, it is my joy today to have as our guest, Dr. Ralph Watkins. Uh, Ralph is the Peachtree Associate Professor of Evangelism and Church Growth at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. He is also the servant pastor of Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta. Welcome to our show, Ralph. Thank you, thanks for having me. And I'd like to be the first one, probably not the first one, but one of the ones to congratulate you that you are being promoted to full professor at Columbia Theological Seminary. I know it's a week away, but it's never too early to say congratulations on earning and being appointed and promoted to full professor. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. I want to start our conversation knowing that we are still at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, um, this time of sheltering, this time of uh, immediately shifting from classroom to online teaching, uh, where people are thrown away from each other. We've got social distancing. We've got all kinds of societal upheaval. So I want, I want our conversation to both be um, about the teaching life, as well as we want to hear from your pastoral heart, right? Uh, because I know that is there. You have been a long friend and, and a participant in the Wabash Center, so you know that those things for us are not separated out. I want to start this conversation, uh, though, talking about the fact that after you earned a D-min and a PhD, you then got an MFA. So talk to us um, why you got an MFA, and then I want to continue our conversation after that about creativity and imagination in this time. But talk to us about, because it's a very serious endeavor to go back and get another degree. And that degree was very different from your PhD in sociology, or maybe not. Help us understand why you went back and got the MFA. Well, first to respond to your the latter part of your question, it was a very different degree to pursue um, training in the arts is much different than the traditional academic world. I knew how to write a paper and give it a, I knew how to write a book, write an article, present a paper. But that's not what art's about. Art's about finding what's in you and expressing that publicly. It's about producing work to be engaged in a very uh, real world, very publicly, i.e. when I was in school writing papers, I would write my paper, turn it into my professor, and he or she would award me a grade. With the MFA, you produce work, you put it on the wall every week, and your colleagues, the entire class critiques your work. Everybody sees your work. It brought back those days of horror as a kid in math class and you go up on the board and have to show your work. Very different degree. What motivated me to get that degree was I began to realize the world was changing radically. We were moving to a visual world. So I was playing with video and photography as a hobby. I was going to workshop at the workshop trying to hone my skills as a storyteller. And I found out that process was not sufficient for me. I needed something much deeper and much richer. And I think that the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back was, I was in Egypt one summer doing some research and I was playing around trying to be the black Anthony Bourdain. And I was posting these daily videos, daily vlogs from, from Egypt during my 14 day trip. I returned back to my church on that Sunday and one of my members said, welcome back to, for, to, uh, from Egypt. I said, good to be back. I said, yeah, how did you know I went? He says, he says, he says I, I went to Egypt with you as well. I said, how did you go with that? I didn't see you. He said, I watched you every day. I then realized people would watch me 
before they would read me. I had to learn this new language. I had to learn to communicate in these new and more robust ways to communicate with my students and the world. So it convinced me to take this journey into this world of getting the MFA. And it was a wonderful experience and uh, the most trying and most difficult degree I've ever, ever received. So Pastor Scholar, help us now in this moment of crisis. For those of us, particularly the younger scholars who are now tasked with the immediacy of moving from a plan, a syllabus plan that was meant for face-to-face to to now going online. Uh, Some people are reporting that their first week of online, um, words like, uh, the challenges were too much for me, I tanked in my first session. (laughs) Those kinds of critiques are coming out. Now, certainly some people were able to do it effortlessly and seamlessly. And other people were in the middle, right? They, they know they had some glitches. But there's some real heartbreak out there about uh, fear of my tenure clock might be stopped. I might be seen as a bad professor because I cannot make this immediate leap. Help us from um, your explanation of what's inside of me, right? You said early on that an artist is a person who, who knows that there's something to say, knows there's something inside of them, and then expresses it. Are there lessons for us right now in that kind of ideology? Well, I think first, let me step back and say as a person of faith, and as I understand my faith, my faith is rooted in love. It's rooted in loving and caring for the world and for my brothers and my my sisters. So I think our first approach here in this time of this pandemic is to first respond lovingly, caringly, and pastorally. So I'm not nearly as concerned about my pedagogical practices as I am concerned about my pastoral heart and caring. Secondly, I would say we shouldn't judge ourselves based on our proficiency or our efficiency as pedagogues online at this point. I think we should judge ourselves on our ability to connect with our students, to care for them, to work with our colleagues, to be concerned with our family, our country, and this world. I think that's priority one. I think the second part will come. I think it's time to ramp down our requirements um, when it comes to our academic rigor and to be more concerned with our caring and concern for our colleagues, our students journey with. And then I think I would say also give ourselves at this moment um, latitude to do the best we can with what we have and that's good enough. Those days will come, we'll begin to develop our proficiencies in various areas, some more than others. And that's okay, but that's not the moniker I think we should be looking at this point. It should be in our caring, our journey, and prayerfully in um, the world becoming healthier as the world deals across the globe with this pandemic that's affecting everybody. So many uh, teachers uh, will give that kind of grace, that kind of leniency, that kind of patience with other people and not give it to themselves. How do, we, how do we extend grace to ourselves in this moment of frustration and crisis? I think first confessing the fact we don't give grace to ourselves. The fact that we sit where we sit means we've done some hard work. We have fought through the PhD. We have fought through the job market. We've secured jobs. We have secured tenure track jobs, interim appointments, part-time appointments, um, part-time appointments. We've achieved tenure. We, we, we focus our life on achieving and working hard and being successful. Let's, 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 let's first own that and then let it go. This is not the moment to hold on to that. This is the moment to let that go just for the moment. We can return to that down the road. And I'm sure we will. 
But this is a special tender moment that we find ourselves in. So I would ask us, uh, I would ask us to first confess the fact that we don't extend grace to ourselves, then repent of that and extend grace to ourselves, our students, our colleagues, our administration, our country, and even political leaders. Easier said than done. Right. But like you said, saying it is the first step, right? It's saying it is along the way to, to set the expectation to, for you to give permission to our colleagues, to me, to all of us, to just kind of be still, take a breath, acknowledge that this is a very unusual time, a very strange time. As we keep hearing over and over again in the media, we have never ever as a country dealt with this kind of situation before. Um, so not, not having a reference point is a new experience. Usually you can, you can reference something, you can tie your, you can moor yourself to something that has happened before or some similar experience. There is no similar experience. Right. So in, in, in the classroom and in dealing with students, uh, um, engaging students, keeping students comforted, even keeping um, your children at home comforted during this time. So now many of the colleagues are uh, homeschooling their own children. They are working in spaces with their colleagues, with their spouses, and spouses are in one room and they're in another room, both trying to do their work. We also have a great deal of colleagues who live alone and depend on their social life outside of the physical house, but now they live alone and are alone in these isolated spaces. So there's a lot of a spectrum of relationships to tend to and to be about. In thinking about being creative, are there um, specific ways of being creative with the use of the arts, with the use of online or even not online that can inform how we move in this time? You know, one thing I've noticed, uh... So I'm a social media junkie. I, I embrace it totally, not uncritically, but I live in that world. I, I believe we are living what some refer to as fully digitally integrated lives. So I long ago let go of this kind of bifurcation or binary of the virtual and the face-to-face. -face. I argue that my virtual and my face-to-face -face have become one. So I live what I call a fully digitally integrated life. So what I found in this time when we find ourselves I'm practicing what we're now calling social distancing. I'm seeing my colleagues post more videos on Facebook than I've ever saw before. People who I never saw pick up a camera are on their phones. We're walking with them. We're talking with them. They're showing us their neighborhood. We're seeing videos from people's home offices, all kinds of things. So what I'm finding is that in my engaging my colleagues in this world, I'm becoming closer, closer to some of my colleagues. I'm seeing people's home office that I would have never seen before. They're working there, they're sharing pictures, telling stories. And so we're finding a way to connect. Uh, in my own context, we had a faculty meeting yesterday um, using uh, uh, the team software in Microsoft um, 365, and we're all there. And some of my colleagues whose children I never saw before, because this one colleague, um, her, uh, her kids are at home with her, they're now in the frame and I'm actually meeting them. Um, my wife's a principal and so she's running a school um, right next to uh, my home office, which is next to her home office. And I'm now learning more about her world. So I'm finding that this is a kind of moment 
that's new and, and fresh in some ways. And I'm finding myself um, building some kind of deeper and more intimate relationships with my colleagues because I'm not entering a space I never entered in before. And then I'm also finding as a moment to, to experiment, to take chances without people judging us. Um, so I take my phone and I do a video of me and Vanessa taking a walk. We would never post that in the normal, uh, the normal time frame, but now we are posting that. So we're taking chances. I, I would encourage my colleagues, one, to, to, to use social media as a way to connect with their colleagues, to think about the precious moments we have and the level of connection we have by being able to enter a space we hadn't entered before. I think it also gives us a license to take a pedagogical liberties and chances with us all realizing we are going to fail at some of this. This is the perfect time where we're all saying it's okay, because guess what? None of us have ever been here before. Be you a, a, a novice or an aficionado that I know it all, how to use this thing. We're all experiencing a new day, a new moment. So I say fully embrace it, connect, resonate with it, and use these tools we do have to, um, to begin to completely integrate our lives, both the virtual and the face-to-face -face as we live and live into this moment of living fully digitally integrated lives. I do think uh, this is a moment where we can move from, or at least critique, um, our corporate relationships, right? So we have what I would call corporate relationships. We do things together, we work together. So basically I'm saying back what you just said. We, we, we bounce off of each other in these workspaces, but we, we probably do not have a deep sense of community with people. We have corporate obligations, but, got, but not communal relationships. What I just heard you describe is this time of crisis has caused us to gather in community more, even if it's in a digital medium. So picking up the phone, calling people, taking risks by doing video, reaching out to that colleague that you don't talk to much, but now you're going to talk to because you're going to check on them or they're going to check on you, seeing people's homes through their video, are, are building community that could be sustaining for us and an opportunity for us after this time. I, I think so. And I think it's also a critique of what we have said. I, I think about um, Shirley, Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together, where she argues that this, this move into the digital is making us um, more alone and, and, and less in community. But it's been interesting doing these Zoom meetings and I have a gallery view and I have to see everybody's face. You can't, you can't bury your face in your iPad or your laptop um, as we do in many of our meetings or sit there for an hour and say absolutely nothing. I see you. And that's faculty so meetings, this, right? We're, not, we're talking about faculty meetings, but faculty colleagues are buried in their laptops. The same people that complain that their students are buried in their laptops. <laughs> exactly. But at faculty meetings, the colleagues are buried in their laptops. I'm sorry. Right. Go ahead. Or, or I can find myself, <laughs> just, 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 just confess my own sins. I can be in a meeting and I can check out for 45 minutes and wait until it's over. But when you put me on Zoom and that little camera on my computer has my body and my face in that presence, in my home, it, it's amazing the level of intimacy and connection we have found there. So in many ways, it's speaking back to what some of us who have been reluctant to enter this world are finding out. We said this world has distanced us. Ironically uh, enough, this world has brought us closer together. It's, it's, it's provided us to transcend those kind of corporate spaces to a more communal intimate space as we now may live far apart we're now experiencing that space together so i found these little small screens which tend to put us together in that one space it feels almost tighter closer more connected 
more intimate, more evasive, right? Because now these people are in my home. And so I'm conscious of my background. We're now trying, we're not, it was amazing. Many of our colors were finding the blur the background feature or the <laughs> virtual background. I don't want you to see my office, right? right. But others of us said, look, come on in and see, right? Mm -hmm. I'm happy that you're here with me. Those who've never been in this space while working every single day, they're now here. So I found we're also learning something here. This is also a moment of, of learning. Of, of how we experience this space. And I would argue how many of our students experience this space. I think about my daughters who are in their early 30s or, or my nephews and nieces who are in their teens and FaceTime is normal to them. They don't use their phone to make a phone call. Whenever they, whenever they reach out to you, it's via FaceTime. And I also found in this time while we've been here, one of our, our youngest daughters, she's a professor at University of Maryland, and we have a wonderful, beautiful grandson who's six months old. And as my wife and I are working together, we get a call every hour or so with my daughter doing her work and my grandson Princeton on FaceTime. So I think we found that we can transcend these corporate relationships to be a deeper community and how I think this virtual world can help us navigate and build these deep, thick, intimate respect for relationships that are mediated via these new tools that we've been blessed with. Well, and I can't imagine uh, in this time without digital media, when people don't live in community as, as we did, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, and the isolation that we would have without that community, and then also without digital media, um, that, that fears have bubbled up quickly um, with this kind of isolation or this kind of prohibition of social movement. Um, and the digital, digital mediums also help allay the fears that people have. Yeah. Keep talking about, uh, there's been a lot of conversation for uh, people who teach in seminary um, and pastors who are responsible for worship, pastors who are responsible for community. How do we, because the conversation that you're talking about in terms of teaching and faculties also is about churches, mm -hmm. right? So pastors are struggling with, do I just stay home? Do I call my, do I cancel worship? What do mm -hmm. I do? What do I do? There was a kind of panic that rippled out and yeah. people yeah. have begun now to parse and figure out strategies. So, so yeah. they don't panic as leaders, yeah. but also so their congregations know that they are in relationship, they are in community and they will be safe. Yeah. There are a couple of things here I want to speak to. One is uh, there's been a lot of conversation about access, broadband access, access to tools that we can connect. So I want to first make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm mindful to think that um, to recognize my own privilege that I live in a house with broadband connection, with multiple computers, multiple cameras, lighting, microphones, et cetera. So there's an access I have and a privilege that I enjoy based on where I sit in this culture and society and this hierarchy. So let me first confess that. Um, and now back to our clergy colleagues as well. Um, so I think both in the context of the church and in the academy, we have to first also think about access. Some of our students um, don't have access. Some of our some of our colleagues were saying, I'm sitting here at home sharing bandwidth with myself, my spouse, my children, and my bandwidth is struggling. And my my screen keeps keeps saying, your internet connection is unstable, mm -hmm. right? Because of the, because of the bandwidth pull here. Um, but but I think when it comes to my clergy colleagues as well as my my colleagues in the academy, I think this moment has said to us a few things. One one thing I've been preaching for years, and I don't mean to sound callous or coarse or disrespectful or insensitive. Um, we're here. We're here. Um, it's just like we had a, a, in some conversations in the national political landscape talking about we weren't prepared. Why weren't we prepared? This was inevitable. The reality is us living in a digital 
um, in virtual world, we have been here for years. We have fought it, we have critiqued it, and be, and be critical and mindful, which is important, but we're here. So I hope this moment teaches us that we can't wait to be prepared for the now. This is not the future, it is the now. What I was happy about at Wheat Street was we were ready. Um, I came in with a little Mevo camera that cost a hundred bucks. We start streaming when we had 50 folk in worship and realized right away our worship doubled. We, we, went, we, went, from, we went from face-to-face writing a check giving to online giving, offerings doubled. When we start advertising via Facebook of opportunities in the city to serve the most vulnerable, we went from 25 church members feeding, clothing, bathing, and providing grooming needs to the most vulnerable, to 300 coming to the center of the city to serve people. We realized the power and the, the agency we found in using social media to fight for a more just society. We found the power in using social media via YouTube Live or Facebook Live for people to engage us in a space we call worship. So I would say to my colleagues, if you're not ready, I, I, I understand the, the anxiety and I, I, I pain with you, but I pray we learn from this moment to fully embrace the now that we're in and realize we're living these fully digitally integrated lives. And so for us at Wheat Street, it was no stress for us to go Facebook Live because we found both our seniors and our juniors and our millennials and our boomers, we were all there. We had already put a process in place to where we went to our seniors' homes who couldn't make it to worship physically. They are watching via Facebook Live. They are absolutely on Facebook. My 85-year-old father, before he passed, was more active on Facebook than I ever was. He would keep me up on the family business. And I would say, Dad, how do you know these stuff? So oh, I see it on Facebook. I'm on Facebook every day. So we can't discount them or think that they don't know how to do what they do. Right. That's right. They, 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 our seniors are some of the most fastest growing population embracing Facebook. And so I would go to business with my seniors and they'll say, you know, I watch this past Sunday, Pastor. They have smart TVs yep. and Facebook's right there on the TV. Yep. And they click in and watch it. So I, I would just say that to my colleagues, I, I, I pray and I understand the anxiety you're facing. But I hope it says to us, let's embrace the now and live into it fully. And I think we realize we're not missing anything. In some, we're missing something, I'm just going to say that. But we still can live through this moment. Well, do you, are you anticipating or have you already started new art projects in this moment? I heard you yes. say you were, so t- tell us about that. Tell us about your new projects yes, well, you or know, the projects well, that you're working on. The new project I'm working on is called Stratline, uh, colon, My Atlanta. What I'm trying to do is use aerial photography, um, videography, and stories to talk about a part of Atlanta we don't see. Atlanta is the black Mecca. Our mayor is Keisha Lance Bottoms. Our city council president is Felicia Moore. And of course, the star of our state, is Stacey Abrams. It's a wonderful state and city to live in, but that's not all of Atlanta. I live in Southwest Atlanta and it has two extremes. It has the largest concentration of black, middle and upper class African-Americans in the city. And then it also has the largest concentration of the most poor, most vulnerable, the working and non-working poor. And I'm trying to visually tell that story and ask the question, how are churches and persons like myself standing with those persons who are the other Atlanta to ensure they too have a part of this promise and live their full lives and that their dreams are not dreams deferred. The power, you're capturing the power of image to uh, control a story, to capture a story, to reclaim a story, right? So that whoever mm-hmm. controls the imagination controls the people. 
Right. And images are a part of that imagination. So, yeah. so um, are you, you're doing it through still photography and video? Tell us, tell both, us. Both things. But I'm trying to do something quite different now that I'm realizing we have, we have this great tool now with drones. And the beauty of aerial did photography. did say aerial photography. Wow. Aerial yeah, photography yeah. gives you a completely different experience of how you see the world and see the community mm -hmm. and see the relationships. So I'm using aerial photography. I'm using documentary storytelling. And then documentary photography, still images, mm -hmm. to try to tell the story. Because, it, it, you know, Bell Hooks, Bell Hooks talks about in her book, Class Matters, we pass by the poor and we don't even see them. The image makes you stop. Mm -hmm. The still image makes you stop and engage. You cannot not see what I'm showing you. But many of, 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 of people in Atlanta and those outside Atlanta, the persons that I, that I walk and live with every day, they don't see. But they're my brothers and my sisters. And I feel responsible with the gifts that God's uh, uh, given me to, along with them, tell our collective story about my Atlanta. That's fabulous. As we wind down our time together, um, you, you've said much to the younger, younger, youngest scholars, the younger, youngest teachers. Are there any one or two piece of it, pieces of advice now that you would say to, I don't have, to the, to the brother or sister, to the colleague, I don't have tenure yet. This moment is scaring me. I feel like I just became a scholar. I just got here. And now the rug has been pulled out under my feet. What would you say to them? When I was finishing my PhD back in the 1900s, there's a thing called email and web pages, <laughs> and they scared me to death. And I had a person on my committee, and she says to me, uh, Kiki Hashimoto was on my committee. She says to me, Ralph, I only communicate through email. If you want to talk to me, you have to talk to me via email. And I, as a young aspiring scholar, had to embrace that new technology. I would say to them, don't fear don't threat. Embrace what is. Develop the beauty and brilliance that's inside of you. You are gifted. You deserve to be where you are. You are everything, a bag of chips, a Pepsi, a Reese's cup, and all of that. Embrace that. Embrace these new technologies. Ease your way into them. Start where you are and move bit by bit at your own pace. Do not sacrifice who you are your values, your morals, your ethics, or your scholarly agenda, but embrace fully who you are and live fully in this moment and produce those things you were created to produce. So you don't become a scholar with nothing to say. You become a scholar because you have something to say. Yeah. And it might be that something that you have to say is for this moment and this time. Yeah. So the something that you will say will be said now, it will be said later, but how to, trying to figure out how to say it now is as important as saying it later. So let us get to the business that we are here for. Well, soon to be full Professor Ralph Watkins, I appreciate your, <laughs> your humor. I appreciate your conversation. I look forward to many projects with you, many, many um, workshops and colloquies and all those kinds of things at the work at the Wabash Center. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you as well. And we're out. How was that, Paul? <laughs>